Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And today we're really, really delighted to be joined by Danielle Allen, professor at Harvard, one of the leading political theorists, uh, uh, students of democracy, of citizenship in the United States, just, just has done some traumatic work. And she's also the director of the Software Center for Ethics at Harvard. I could spend probably the full uh, period giving you uh, Danielle's background. It's just really remarkable. But let me just give you a few of the highlights. She was born in Tacoma Park, Maryland, grew up in Southern California, attended Princeton. Uh, from there, she went. Uh, she won a Marshall Fellowship and went to Cambridge in the UK, studied at King's College, got a master's and doctorate there. Then she moved back to the US, went to the other Cambridge in Massachusetts at Harvard, got a master's and doctorate there, had a stellar teaching career, including about a decade at the University of Chicago, and then also at Princeton and at Harvard. Um, she's been real active in a number of task force and commissions. I mean, she's one of the real pillars. And I, she, she chaired a really important task force about a, a year or so ago on uh, reinventing American democracy, working on citizenship issues, which is extremely important. Um, she's a great writer. You'll, uh, she's written uh, columns in The Post and The Atlantic. Um, and she's written a terrific and really powerful book called Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus, which we will talk about at some length. Um, Danielle recently ran for governor of Massachusetts, uh, ran a very interesting and inspiring campaign, withdrew recently, but I suspect uh, she will be back on the campaign trail again. She received really rave plaudits for just an idealistic and yet practical campaign that just had a lot of uplift to it. So we're delighted that she joins us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much, Professor Shaw. Dr. Shaw, it's great to be with you. Glad to be here. Great. Well, let's talk a little bit about your early years. I mean, your 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 dad was a professor, your mom a librarian. As I understand it, you grew up in a family with lots of books, a lot of interest interest in literature and reading. Talk a little bit about that. Um, yes. I mean, I definitely grew up in a family with books everywhere. And I am, you know, a nerd fundamentally at heart. I was a little kid who used to love to sit on hot summer days underneath my bed, there was a wood floor below my bed. So that was a cool spot. And I would lie with just my head out from underneath the bed with my nose in the book. So um, that is definitely how I spent a lot of time um, as a kid and really grateful for the love and support my parents gave me in opening my eyes to a big world through books um, and travel and other amazing opportunities. And I read someplace where uh, your family maybe once or twice actually like read through the Bible as, as kind of literature. I, I guess that was the main uh, focus. Was that, tell us a little bit about that experience. I mean, literature and faith. I mean, so I was raised in a religious family and um, my father, in particular, my granddad was a Baptist preacher. And so um, my dad wanted to make sure his kids understood um, their faith traditions. And so we would every, you know, at, after dinner every night, we would take turns, you know, reading a chapter through sort of verse by verse around the table. Um, and so we we cycled through the whole Bible twice before my dad let us off the hook. So. <laughs> well, then you, you went to Princeton and um, and you, you tell the story of this remarkable professor, uh, Professor um, um, Ober who was a classics. I think he, he taught he taught you a class in Athenian democracy. Yeah. And you wrote of him, you said, I'm in the field because of his teaching. I can't jump all over the room as he did, but I've realized how important his enthusiasm was to mine. Tell us about yeah. the professor. 
Um, well, Professor Ober was extraordinary. I mean, he was enthusiastic. He's very tall. He's probably six foot four. And I remember when I was an undergraduate at Princeton, he had just arrived and he had come from Montana. And Princeton was a pretty buttoned down place. You know, most of the professors wore, you know, something like yourself, jacket and tie and so forth. And he was there in hiking boots and he looked like he'd just come from out west. And so he brought a certain kind of energy and dynamism into the space. And he was very supportive of students' questions and curiosities. He would always meet your question with a suggestion for how you could take it further and do more research on it. Um, and so that was really inspiring and eye-opening. And I, I read an article, I guess it was in the University of Chicago publication about your approach to teaching. You say, I don't usually think of myself as teaching knowledge. I like to think of myself as teaching a way to ask questions and advance conversations. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I was fortunate to start my teaching career at the University of Chicago, which is a really discussion-based um, university. And I sort of, in my head, sort of draw a contrast between lecture-based places like Harvard or Princeton, and then the Chicago, which is the sort of, the seminar is the heart of everything. And at the end of the day, um, I, I am a teacher who feels most comfortable in that space where the job is to help students um, articulate their questions and then equip them to pull answers out of themselves and out of one another. And so the question is, where can we get together as a kind of collective thinking enterprise? It's not about my delivering you know, knowledge to you. It is about our thinking together. Well, when you were in Chicago, you also had a venture that was, I think, really impactful for you and I'm sure for your students, <coughs> pardon me. And it was a program by the Illinois Humanities Council. I think it was called the Odyssey Project mm -hmm. in which you taught older students, many of them lower income, um, was it the Declaration or some of our founding documents? Tell us about that experience. Well, it was a humanities program generally. I mean, so I, you know, we, we talked about my being from, you know, as a faculty brat, grew up with a professor dad and a librarian mom. I was also from a really big family, an extended family growing up in Southern California and generally lower middle class in the 70s when we were growing up. But over time, 80s and 90s, as our economy really pulled into different directions, different parts of my family members ended up in different places and some got really trapped in the worst things that we have in our society, incarceration, not getting through school, gun violence experiences and things like that. And so, you know, I could feel my own sort of family life sort of pulling apart. And even as I got more opportunities inside universities, I had a deep sense of care and commitment and connection to people who weren't getting the same opportunities as I was. And then one day I was sitting at a meeting with the woman who ran the Illinois Humanities Council. And she said, you know, we've been trying to start this program in the humanities for low-income adults, and I can't find any university to partner with me. And I said, I've been waiting for years to have the chance to do something like that. So together we built a program, one-year program in the humanities for low-income adults. And the point was to try to help people who had fallen out of access to education, get their foot back in the door for education. So we did literature and philosophy and history and art history. And yes, in that context, I really started teaching the Declaration of Independence a lot as history, as philosophy, as an example of writing. Um, so there, you know, I've now had 20 years of working with the Declaration of Independence that really came out of that night class for low-income adults. And you say that class also in, uh, kind of reinforced the importance of just speaking clearly and directly and kind of mm -hmm. setting aside the jargon and just speaking to people kind of where they're at. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Declaration of Independence is this sort of hallowed text. It's so famous. And the original parchment is you know, underneath layers of glass and special gases that will preserve it in the National Archives. It's sort of like it's almost untouchable. And as I began to teach um, the text in the night class, my students, I had this extraordinary experience where 
they reacted to it and connected to it so much faster than my, you know, super sophisticated day students at the University of Chicago. And it was a really very basic reason why the declaration just tells a story of a bunch of people who were fed up, fed up with their circumstances. They had enough, you know, sort of list of tyrannies from the king and the like, and they diagnosed their circumstances when in the course of human events, they say it becomes necessary to make a change. And then they justify their change, what they want to do. And all of my night students were in that class because they too were fed up with where they were in life. They wanted to make a change. So they got that kind of human core of the declaration really fast. And it just opened it up for me, its power and its really, you know, magnificence. I, I was reading a profile of you in the Harvard Magazine, and it was referring to you as, as kind of an analyst and also as a writer. And I want to read a few sentences and maybe have <laughs> you first blush and then you can uh, react to it. But it says, as a commentator, Alan stands out among progressive writers for her even handedness and generosity towards conservatives. She has been unsparing about the candidacy of, of Donald Trump, though she will argue with rationality and great restraint with individual Trump supporters. But her columns otherwise contain little in the way of gripes, insults, or insinuations about Republicans destroying the country, in which some liberal op-ed writers traffic. Past columns on issues like government power and drug policy take pains to build a middle ground between left and right. Her writing reads like the product of a more civilized, less polarized time when American communities were sufficiently purple that people generally thought about how their words would make their neighbors or relatives feel before they spoke in public. Talk about that. I mean, just maybe just your approach to to ana analyzing public policy and also writing about it. Well, you know, I mean, it's a mixture of the personal and the intellectual. So at a personal level, for starters, you know, I was raised by a very serious conservative. And so was myself raised as a conservative. My own political journey um, really got underway in college. I did start um, questioning some of the things I'd been, um, you know, brought up with and traveling abroad and so forth also um, brought me new perspectives. Um, so, but as a result, you know, I am from a family network of people that spans the ideological spectrum. And when I was a kid, you know, my dad, who is conservative, and my aunt, who was running for office in the Peace and Freedom Party, you know, very far left party in California, would have just these incredible arguments over the dining room table. So um, I grew up in a space where it was possible to disagree ideologically and never break the bonds of love. And so I carry that with me as a basic expectation for how we can be in the world. Um, and then, you know, there's the intellectual part of it. I mean, I think um, there's a great passage by George Washington, I think, in the farewell address where he basically says, when we see great polarization, what that actually means is that neither side has the answer. And so there's a job to do to figure out what is the little seed of truth that might be lodged inside this crazy, you know, clouds of passion on both sides. But let's like step back and not make a decision because it means we've got it wrong. And so we've got to actually reorient and find a new path towards the right solution. So, you know, I take that quite seriously um, and think that it is helpful, actually, for finding the way toward better um, solutions. Okay. Well, let's talk about your work on the coronavirus, because as I, I mentioned, this, uh, this book is a really uh, powerful guide to just tell us really where we are today. And, and talk a little bit about how you got so immersed in the kind of research. I know you were at the Software Center and you know COVID was breaking out in the early spring and you wanted to see what you could do. And your 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 research center just plunged into it, wrote, you know, a couple dozen white papers, uh, policy frameworks. Talk about how you got pulled in so uh, so fully into the COVID crisis. 
So there is a little bit of prehistory here. And um, the prehistory really, again, it comes from life and life experience. Um, I lost a beloved cousin, Michael, in 2009. We had grown up together. He was probably the first baby I ever held. And um, in 1995, when he was 15, and I was a few years out of college, he was arrested on a first arrest in Southern California for an attempted carjacking. That was a terrible thing to have done, but it was also a time in California where punishment was at its most intense. And so on that first arrest, he got a sentence of 12 years and eight months. And from 15, did ultimately serve um, about 12 of those years. And so in 2009, he was shot and killed by somebody he had met um, while he was in prison. And that was a very devastating moment for me. I had always been somebody who saw our country as having a mixture of light and dark, things to be proud of, lots of reasons for optimism and also challenges and, and struggles. And in that moment, I came to have a sort of bleaker view of just the way in which, especially for some communities, you know, we'd gotten to a place where people were really trapped. Um, and as a result of that, I <laughs> uh, started really working on uh, justice reform questions. And I landed at Harvard at the Ethics Center in 2015 in the same year that the National Academies of Sciences had put out a report on the causes and consequences of mass incarceration. And this was an extraordinary report, big team of scholars, they just combed all the data, trying to, you know, is it economics, is it health questions, is it education, demographic factors and the like. And after they scrubbed all this data, there was this amazing chapter 12 where they said, but you know, another really important cause of the rise of mass incarceration is that nobody has asked basic ethics questions for years about punishment. You know, what is punishment for? What is justice? What should be the parameters of just punishment? We've been rinsing and repeating the sort of retributivist and deterrent framework. We haven't asked those basic ethical questions. And so I said to myself, coming into Direct and Ethics Center, aha, that's our job. Our job is to make sure ethics is always at the table for every hard public question. And that led me to build a group, a network of scholars that we call the Justice, Health, and Democracy Initiative that was trying to link scholars across disciplines, law and public health and medicine and political science and ethics, philosophy always at the table. So that group had been working for several years, justice, health, and democracy when COVID hit. And there you go. There was a problem where we had a huge intersection of health and law and political science and basic ethics questions. So we thought we could contribute. And yes, we jumped in. And you know, right from the get-go, we did that work of seeing a polarized conversation. Some people saying we've got to protect health. Other people saying we've got to protect the economy. We said, no, no, don't start by assuming a trade-off, okay? You can't have a healthy economy without health for people, and you can't have healthy people without a healthy economy. There's got to be a way here for us to work on aligning our objectives of protecting lives, protecting livelihoods, and protecting liberties. We can do those things at the same time. How do we achieve alignment? That was the question we asked, and all of our work flowed out of asking that question. Well, the U.S. Uh, obviously has not performed well. And there was, I think there's a footnote in your book, which you cite a study that came out just in the early days of COVID by um, the Imperial, I forget what it was called, college, which yeah. said something to the effect that if the United States did absolutely nothing, 2.2 million people would die. And I remember I, I actually saw that study when it came out and I thought, oh my God, that is such a astonishing number. Yeah. And then I think of, you know, two and a half years later, after all that we've done and all the contortions and all the trillions, a million people died. And again, yeah. a million is less than two million, but still it's a, a scale of failure that is astonishing. And yeah. as you as you write in this book, I mean, it, it breaks down on so many levels, the trade off between economics, seeming trade off between economics and public health, mm -hmm. um, the fracturing of our federalist system 
Um, but really, at core, you say it's just it's it's a it's a, it's a kind of uh, unraveling of our democracy, or excuse me, our, our governance. And let me just read a sentence. You said when the new coronavirus arrived in the United States in January 2020, it hit an economy, societal society, and constitutional democracy fundamentally unprepared. As the scale of challenge became clear, the country simply could not deliver what was needed to confront it. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, I mean, early on March 2020, as I said, we were trying to figure out how to align the objectives of protecting health and protecting the economy. And it became clear quickly that the answer to that question was a real ramp up of testing infrastructure and contact tracing and supported isolation, right? So if, if we could see the virus, if we could know where it was, you would be able to um, slow its spread much more effectively um, and really do that work of protecting health in the economy simultaneously. And as we were working on you know, laying out what kind of supply chain work would you need to get this done and so forth, um, one of my scientist colleagues said to me, you know, Daniel, there's no law of physics that has to be broken to get this done. And that was a sort of very inspiring statement, right? Like, you know, this is scientifically possible. There's no law of physics that has to be broken to get this done. And the journey to try to get to a place where we actually had built out the testing infrastructure that we needed really taught me a deep lesson that there was a law of physics that had to be broken. Um, it's called the issue of trust and distrust in politics. Um, in order to do hard things together, members of a democratic citizenry need to trust each other. And we are riven by distrust. And at the end of the day, you can only convert distrust into trust with time. And so we had a time problem that we had to deal with. So that is a kind of law of physics that is captured in the form of politics. But so in other words, our rising polarization, our division over years is what our coronavirus response got caught in. And you know, it just sort of shows you how um, vulnerable our own fighting makes us. And it shows, I think, how important it is for us at, at every level of our government to see what we can actually do to rebuild trust relationships, proving ourselves trustworthy to one another, um, recommitting to some kind of shared endeavor. I want to underscore that point by just uh, reading a few words that you wrote, which really hit me powerfully. It said, the pandemic taught us a dark truth. We don't know in conditions of emergency that we'll, we will be okay together. Too many people were willing to, to abandon our elders. Too many were willing to equally, equally willing to abandon essential workers. Too many people were willing to abandon the young. Too many people were also willing to abandon African-American and Hispanic Latinx Americans. Too many were willing to abandon rural workers. Too many people were willing to limit liberties indefinitely or act on them abusively. Talk about that just erosion in what you call the, the social compact. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I just, um, it's a long list there of ways in which we let each other down. And so in some sense, different groups of people are letting other groups of people, you know, down at different points in time. But the basic idea of a social compact or social contract, right, is that we all chip in, you know, we pay our taxes, we work hard, we follow the law, and then we get back protection of our rights and some basic kind of foundation for our material well-being. And what was so astonishing to me, um, you know, in the first weeks of the pandemic was how quickly some people just weren't getting that protection at all. And, you know, essential workers, right, who are being pushed back without access to testing and PPE. And so 
those who could, those who had resources, like we're building bubbles, you know, my university, colleges and universities were protecting themselves and the MBA was protecting itself. And then others were just left to fend for themselves. And sometimes, you know, it was just kind of, you could see this kind of collective action failure. Everybody, every organization was just kind of tending to its own garden and some extent you can understand that. But I was also just astonished by how often in casual conversation I would hear people say about older people things like, oh, well, it's just their time. Why are we doing all of this when it's, you know, it's just their time? And, you know, that kind of thing along all those different axes over and over again, it was very um, scary, ultimately, in terms of what it revealed about how far away our instincts are from the expectation that, you know, we're in it together. Uh, this hard thing has hit and we're all in it together and we've got everybody to protect right now. And of course, during this whole uh, crisis, there's been a discussion about just our functioning government and the federalist system we have with a federal government, state, local governments. And you know, there's been some writing about, okay, this shows federalism doesn't work. As you point out, other federal systems, Australia, Germany did pretty darn well on this or better than the United States. So mm -hmm. you say it's not, not a flaw of the system itself, but a flaw in the governance of the system. And particularly, I think you're most critical of the federal government, just its inability set a clear strategic direction to give accurate factual information to just sort of kind of lay out how we are going to be okay together. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the basic job of teaching the public and engaging the public in both, you know, just sort of routine understanding, development of understanding that did not go well um, as led by the Trump White House. You know, that was a real weak spot in our national response for sure. But with regard to federalism, I think it's important to say there's another really big issue. We have two competing pictures of how our federal structures are supposed to work. And I think they're both wrong. So on the one hand, on the right, you have the view that federalism just means let states do whatever they want. And on the other hand, on the left, you have the view that the whole point is to have a strong central government, strong, you know, sort of national government. And I think both have sort of actually missed the point of what the original design was. We had the Constitutional Convention when the Articles of Confederation were breaking down precisely because it wasn't working when states were doing everything that they wanted, right? The whole point is that that causes breakdown. Um, but by the same token, everybody, you know, recognize that you need the right kinds of things centralized, but you don't need everything centralized. And so the vocabulary that they used in the Federalist Papers to talk about what the goal was, was harmonization. That the job of federalism was to make harmonization of interests between states and national interests possible. And so it's that project of harmonizing um, across jurisdictions that I think we don't really articulate for ourselves often any longer as a project. And that's really what I was making, wanting to make the case for is that you know, we need the federal government to articulate a goal um, and then to think about how to bring those jurisdictions into a harmonized effort. Australia was a good example. Their national government set up an emergency council with um, representatives from every state's leadership from both parties in every state. So right from the get-go, they had a kind of nation nationwide council whose purpose was to harmonize effort across jurisdictions and you know, forgetting about party position. 
Well, you also uh, write powerfully about the role of schools during this crisis. And I have to say that this was the part that was most illuminating to me because, mm -hmm. you know, schools obviously, you know, with schools shutting down, you know, we, we thought a lot about the, the education component. But you say schools have taken on a much larger role in American life than sometimes we appreciate. You say schools are delivering food, medical care, and sometimes even housing facilities, showers, and the like to children who would otherwise go without. When a school closed, to in-person learning, the immediate need to be addressed was not a gap in student learning, but a more fundamental gap in student access to basic necessities. Schools have accidentally become our welfare infrastructure, something this pandemic has made apparent. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was a real eye-opening moment. I have to thank my colleague, Mira Levinson, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education for really calling attention to this fact. But yes, I mean, when school shut down in March 2020, uh, the worst crisis was not the educational crisis, but the crisis around basic needs. And so schools had to scramble and figure out, okay, how are they going to keep providing food anyway, make it available so families could come pick up food and the like? What about the sort of routine health visits that they'd been providing and so forth? And so what became visible was that, you know, as we um, reduced and sort of un built the welfare state in the 90s and 2000s, what has happened is that the sturdiest um, existing state level public infrastructure, which is schools, have picked up a lot of those functions. So I actually think this is an opportunity for us. I mean, if we can see that schools are providing this backbone, um, a sort of foundation of support for communities, I think we could actually invest some of our efforts to provide that sort of safety net function sort of in schools and through schools really see schools as anchors for healthy communities. So it was a kind of eye-opening moment, like an X-ray, you know, being shown on our infrastructure, but I do think there's an opportunity in what we saw. Another really important point you make is just sort of how maybe our lack of civic education uh, sort of made us unprepared to understand what the roles of government could be or should be. Um, and you use a number that has gotten, you know, grabbed my attention. You say the United States now spends about $50 a year per student on STEM and only five cents a year on civic education. And then you say, we have gotten what we paid for. <laughs> yep. Um, well, enough said. <laughs> How important would be a, I mean, this is more a long-term strategy, but I mean, what should we be doing in the, in the context of civic education and citizenship development? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's so important when we talk about civic education that we sort of put the whole kit and caboodle on the table. So lots of times, you know, you'll hear folks say, gosh, we've really got to teach kids to participate and really teach them to appreciate the institutions of democracy. But the truth of the matter is, um, you can't just encourage people to participate in something if it's broken. And we have lots of evidence for this from other parts of the world. So in places where democracies are still developing, lots of times you'll see a really um, energetic effort to encourage voter turnout and the like. And then the election will be as corrupt as ever. And so then the result is people are more cynical after you started than beforehand. So you can't just do civic education or encouragement to participate on its own you actually also have to tackle the health of the institutions themselves and their governance capabilities. So we do need to reinvest in educating young people about our constitutional democracy and really building up their own civic muscles so that they know how to participate and can feel effective and, and powerful in participating. 
but we have to also take responsibility for ensuring that what we ask them to participate in is worth their time. And that's the point I really want to underscore. I think for a lot of people right now, our institutions don't feel honestly worth their time. They're not solving the most urgent problems in their lives, whether that's a housing crisis, whether that's issues of justice reform, whether that's issues around taxes or a sense of having the liberty to participate in your faith um, in the way that you need to. And a lot of people feel that our institutions are not delivering for really pressing needs. Um, and so, you know, we do have to take a look uh, at that piece of it at the same time that we're trying to pull people back into participation. Well, in the book, you lay out your agenda. And I, I love the fact that you said, I'm not just going to tell you what's wrong. I mean, these are some of the things we can do to start getting ourselves back on track. And you list five initiatives. I want to touch on them briefly. One of them, you say smarter, more progressive taxes to pay for the public goods we need. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, if you would. Sure. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, to build a healthy society requires investing in core infrastructure. And we know that when we think about freeways, for example, or airports and things like that, there are other parts of our infrastructure that we need for a healthy economy. So the education infrastructure, um, health infrastructure and the like. And we really are at a kind of pivotal moment um, in our country, a little bit like the end of World War II. At the end of World War II, the US had a budget surplus. Um, and we didn't give that budget surplus back in tax you know, paybacks or sort of you know, sales tax holidays and the like. What we actually did was take that surplus and invest it in the infrastructure of a free and prosperous Europe. We invested it in highway infrastructure, Eisenhower's um, infrastructure in this country. And the result of those investments were then economies and societies that were more prosperous and healthy in both sides of the ocean and strengthened um, the conditions for freedom generally. And we need those kinds of investments now. Um, we have taken huge hits in this country from the global recession in 2008, um, from the pandemic. Um, and we really do need to reinvest in the basic foundations needed to support healthy communities. Well, another one you said, which I thought was very powerful, you say we need activists who organize for government and not just power organized to build super majorities in support of common purpose, not 50 plus one majorities to hammer the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that people probably think that sounds crazy. Um, the notion that people would organize to sort of secure super majorities. Um, but, you know, when you look around at state politics and ballot propositions, it's not crazy. We actually have seen a number of states pass ballot propositions in recent years with super majorities. And they range from, in Massachusetts, we had a more than 70% vote in favor of ensuring that small auto shops can access the data in cars and so that they can continue to stay in the business of doing car repairs. Um, in Florida, a supermajority voted to restore voting rights to people who completed their felony convictions. In Mississippi, a supermajority voted in a new state flag um, to replace the former Confederate emblems on the flag. So it is actually possible to achieve supermajorities. And when you look at the places where we've done that in the country, it actually reveals a very powerful moral compass um, pointed at the direction of a fair and inclusive 21st century democracy. So I like to call out those examples to say to people, like you can aim for a supermajority, you can pull people from the other side together with you um, for a work of shared purpose. Well, Dr. Allen, in your writing, you, you, you talk a lot about social media 
And, and in this uh, array of responses, you say, we the consumers of contempt-driven media mm -hmm. need to stop consuming contempt-driven media. Explain yeah. about how we get out of this morass. Well, maybe I'll just give you one very specific example just from my own experience. You know, I just came off running a gubernatorial campaign and anybody who is currently exposed to the world of politics and political fundraising knows you get a million emails and text messages and a ridiculous number of those emails are structured around trying to stir up the emotions of anger and fear and outrage. So people have figured out that those emotions um, make money, basically. It's just very straightforward. It's like a cash register, like make people angry, like get a buck, make people angry, get a buck. And so we are creating a kind of pathology for our whole society, like out of that fundraising mechanism. So in my campaign, we committed to the idea that we were only going to work in the emotional registers of hope and respect and possibility. And yes, we were going to have to fundraise, but we were going to make sure that we were always telling people the truth, you know, here's what the facts are, and here's what we think the cause for hope is in this context and condition. And we were successful. So it is possible to work in ways that are supportive of people's psychological life in positive ways um, that are not bringing negative emotions to the surface and the like. Um, and I think we have to ask for that. We have to refuse to pay for things that make us angry and outraged and fearful. Uh, just stop, stop giving money, stop paying for anything that makes you feel that way. And if we can stop doing that, people will stop doing it and we can find our way onto another path. Well, you've mentioned your, your campaign and it's in reading about it, it was, you know, really touted as idealistic and tough minded and inspiring. And I wonder, as you were out on the trail, were people interested in, and I guess this is not either or, you know, the issues of housing and transportation and education, you know, the meat and potatoes issue, or, or and were they interested in just the state of our democracy? What, 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 what are people worried about in Massachusetts? What are they thinking about? What are they hoping for? Well, it's, it's definitely both and um, for sure. Um, but I will say that I think, um, you know, you don't exactly win votes just by invoking democracy, which is an interesting thing. So although people are very worried about the state of our democracy, um, for everybody, there's something in their own life that is also a really kind of immediately felt need. And again, maybe it is about housing or maybe it's you've been stuck in a commute for ridiculous numbers of hours and you can't get home to see your kids before bedtime. And it's like life just like isn't right for some reason. And so the challenge, I believe, is to make very clear how our failures to address those pain points flow from the weaknesses in our democracy um, and to make those links for people. That's the really critical thing, I think, to driving change toward a healthy democracy. Was there anything on the campaign trail that just really surprised you? Oh, goodness. Well, I think the biggest surprise, honestly, was how much I enjoyed myself. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a surprise. I mean, honestly, when I started, you know, it was really the pandemic that provoked me. I had a real sense of despair about the state of affairs and governance failures and how slow our own state government in Massachusetts was to see really critical needs for elderly people, for communities of color and the like. Um, and so um, I had this sort of, you know, grit my teeth, kind of grit my teeth and do this, like eat my vegetables kind of attitude, like somebody's got to do it kind of thing. And to the contrary, you know, 
it was such a joy. I mean, meeting people all over the state of Massachusetts who are doing such good work in their communities, it became clear to me that all the solutions to our problems are, like, are right there, lying around on the ground, clear to people in local communities. And what we really need to do is to make space for people to be able to step up, share their good ideas, be empowered at the level of state government to actually bring them to fruition. Um, so that's where I come back to the importance of voice and access and full participation for everybody as the solution to so many of our challenges. Great. We have a couple of questions that have been e emailed in. The first is Mindy from Carbondale, who I, in full disclosure, is my wife, but she sent a question in. And she, she noted that in the New York Times today that um, the Senate is putting together a $10 billion uh, COVID package, but it removed $5 billion as part of the global vaccine initiative. And she's wondering, is this penny wise, pound foolish? Is it in some way a metaphor for U.S. global leadership on COVID? I do think it is uh, penny-wise and pound-foolish. I mean, the more that we can do to slow the circulation of the virus, the better for all of us. And at the end of the day, it really is that global vaccine drive that is so critical. So, um, yes, I mean, I think we've seen um, a real shift away from our ability to be kind of clear-eyed about how leadership on behalf of the globe generally brings benefit to us. William from Carbondale asks, uh, even before the COVID pandemic, vac vaccination as preventive practice has become polarized in the United States. Can, what can we do to depolarize that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, one of the things that I worked hard on in the schools and COVID work was really trying to encourage um, state governments to help schools set up school-based um, COVID response teams, basically, that were taking responsibility for that public health conversation with their communities. And um, at the end of the day, I got some uptake, but not, you know, universal uptake for sure. And I think we really do still need to do the work of empowering people in local contexts with knowledge and expertise, and then with the tools to be carriers of important messages to their own communities. So we need to move away from sort of top-down messaging um, and really support um, empowering local leaders to engage with their communities around critical health questions. Well, on, on COVID, um, you know, you wrote your book, I think you, you wrote it in maybe March of 21. So about a year ago, a year has passed. What, um, if you were to write, a, you know, a final chapter or an additional chapter, what is this last year? How, how would you assess what we have been able to do? Um, that's a great question. And so, yes, I mean, the book kind of was written in phases. The first draft was written May 2020. So it was really, really very early. And then I was sort of trying to revise it um, through 2021, basically. Um, so it was a challenging uh, book to write. Um, you know, slowly, slowly, we have gotten better at in having consistent, um, educative messages coming from the CDC and then reinforced by the White House and with sort of shared messaging between the two. And so I think slowly, slowly, we are getting to a place where as a society, we have a shared understanding um, of the risks um, and the tools at our disposal um, to respond to the risks. So that's an improvement, um, that's an improvement. Um, it's you know painful to see how slowly uh, it goes, trying to rebuild that capacity um, but good to see that we are rebuilding it. 
A final question. We have a lot of students joining us today. And I mean, you've done so many things. And uh, this is going to be a sweeping and maybe a hard question to answer. But, but what have you learned in terms of your professional life? What are the central lessons that you have you've drawn that will, you know, kind of instruct you going forward, and that you would maybe encourage students to think about as they consider their careers? Well, you know, um, I feel very grateful to have a strong sense of personal purpose. And so I am, for lots of reasons, coming from family and life experience, really committed to the goal of achieving inclusive, participatory, healthy democracies, the kinds we deserve here in the 21st century. And I see healthy communities as flowing from our achievement of those inclusive, um, participatory democracies. And so because of that strong sense of purpose, um, I'm able to see opportunities in my life as a scholar, my life as a teacher, my life outside the university, um, and to, to put them to work on behalf of that purpose. And so, you know, lots of times I think it can feel like a rat race, you know, what job should I have? Should I move from this job to that job? And I would just really encourage um, students to stop and try to figure out, you know, what is it um, that really is driving you? What would you like to see come into the world on account of your efforts and energies. And then when you begin to have clarity about that, um, ask questions about jobs and roles in relationship to that purpose. Final, final question. Do you have another book coming out? I mean, I know you will, but at, is there something else percolating? Are you just oh, gosh. letting things uh, simmer a little bit? Well, <laughs> slightly embarrassing. I do I have a book that'll be out next year. It is a it's a it's more of a tome in this case. It's a big book of political philosophy, sort of a capstone for a body of work I've been working on over a decade. So it's called Justice by Means of Democracy. We will look for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Wonderful to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Allen. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simoncast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simoncast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.